Welcome to those who are joining us in the Fellowship Hall and online today. It's good to be able to study the Word of God together. We're now in part two of a series called The Good and Beautiful God, but about the kind of good and beautiful life that God wants for us to know. And we all know that there are things that can make our lives less than beautiful, but we don't often realize that many of those things come from us living our lives out of fear rather than living out of the foundation of God's unshakable love for us. Living in the kingdom, living where the king rules. And today, today we're learning about what our king has to say about the role of anger in our lives under his kingdom. So to introduce a few things, I'd like to start by sharing a scenario from the book with you. Imagine you have a lunch appointment with a friend at noon. And you get there and you take a seat and your friend is five minutes late and you're not concerned about it. You know what traffic is like, especially with the road construction right now. So you drink your water and you look at the menu. But then she's 10 minutes late and then 15. So you try your cell phone, it goes right to voicemail. She's 20 minutes late. You text, still no answer. And then the internal dialogue starts running. Why didn't she tell me she was going to be late? Doesn't she respect me or my time? I have to be somewhere at 1 o'clock, and she knew that. Will I even be able to eat if I wait for her to order? Or did she forget me? What if she cared so little about meeting with me that she didn't even remember we had an appointment? Apparently, I'm not very important. And suddenly, you're mad. You order your food and you eat it, fuming. And then at 12.45, she comes in the door, shaking. She's been in a car accident. Her phone shattered. And she asked the police to drop her here so she could talk to you. A minute ago, you were furious. How about now? Ever been there? Where did that come from? Well, anger is a human response to a perceived threat. There's a part of your brain that's triggered for a fight or flight response when you're faced with something threatening. And there's good reason for that, because if you need to fight a threat, you need some adrenaline. But a lot of times, the threat that we're reacting to isn't to our physical safety, but to our emotional well-being or things that we value. In this scenario, anger rose up because of a perceived threat to your value. See, the root of almost all anger is actually fear. Before you had all the information, that fear was triggered and that fear became anger. So anger can actually be a powerful diagnostic because when it shows up, it points to something being wrong. Something needs to get worked out or talked out or figured out. Why did you move into anger instead of concern when you were in doubt? What made you feel threatened? God cares. It's very important that you are treated with respect because you matter. But God also cares very deeply about what's going on in your heart. And with the diagnostic of anger, what you're going to sometimes find is that what needs fixing isn't what other people are doing, but what's going on with the assumptions you're making in your own heart. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you find that angry words are often coming out of your mouth or angry thoughts are filling your mind, there is something wrong. Something's going on that needs to get addressed. And it's time to give God the opportunity to show you what wounds are getting triggered. Because what matters most, and you're going to find this keeps coming up through the next weeks, what matters most is what's happening in your heart 
because everything else flows from there. It's important where your security comes from. And God wants to build up in us a deep trust in the value that he gives us, that nothing that we face can ever change. So in that way, the diagnostic of anger actually helps us discover some things that God wants to show us that we might not otherwise even realize is going on in our own hearts. So in saying that, I want to admit to you today that the title of this message is misleading. Because the truth is, you are never going to live without anger. You just aren't. Not as long as you're a human being. And quite honestly, in itself, anger isn't bad. It's an emotion that every human has, and we were created to experience it. But what we do want, though, is to live without anger ever being king of our actions or reactions. The kingdom is where the king rules. We want Jesus to rule in us. And so we want our anger, along with all the rest of us, to serve the purposes of the king for us. And that is possible. Jesus, without sin, is shown by scripture to have been angry many times. In Mark 3, 5, Jesus was angry when some Pharisees tried to keep him from healing a man's hand on the Sabbath day. He was angry they valued their structure more than this man's life. In Matthew 21, 12, Jesus was angry when the money changers at the temple became a barrier to people honoring God, not what God wanted. In John 11, when Jesus saw Mary crying over the death of her brother Lazarus, Jesus was angry at death for separating Lazarus from those he loved. And in each one of those cases, Jesus' anger pointed to something that was not as God wanted it to be. And that anger led him to action, to rebuke the wrong so that repentance, a change of heart, might happen, or in action to just plain change the situation. In Mark, Jesus healed the man in spite of the Pharisees' feelings. In Matthew, Jesus took the time to make a cord whip and then drove the sacrificial animals out of the temple, rebuking the practices of the money changers. In John, Jesus raised Lazarus to life to restore him back to his family, and then he went to the cross to take on death itself for us so that now for those who are in Christ, death can no longer separate us from our loved ones forever. There will be a day of reunion. And because of what Jesus did, nothing will ever be able to separate us from God, ever. You see, Jesus felt anger at the things that were wrong, but his anger directed him into things that led to reconnection and restoration. Anger is a diagnostic because it can let us know something's wrong. Anger in itself is not bad, but how we use our anger really can be. Because once your dander is up, it's really hard to use anger in a godly way. When we act out of anger, we're usually not acting out of a place of love. And we often end up just adding to the wounds of the world instead of helping them. So how can our anger serve the purposes of the king instead of becoming king over us? In Ephesians 4, the apostle Paul actually talks about this. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. What Paul's addressing here are actually two different kinds of anger. And the first one is what the Good and Beautiful Life book calls reactive anger, or what I call explosive anger. It's when something happens and it triggers the fight response in your brain. Perceived threat, detected, fight, fight, fight. And you explode and you attack 
with words or volume or intimidation, and that explosion sends emotional shrapnel into all kinds of relationships around you. So easy to do, isn't it? That's what Paul means when he says, in your anger, do not sin. So you're going to be angry sometimes, maybe with good reason. But in your anger, be careful not to add to the brokenness. If you've ever been faced with someone's explosive anger, you get why that's not what God wants for relationships. Most people understand why that isn't the best. It's just really hard not to do it sometimes, right? It takes some practice to change that, to have a changing of your mind, of how you respond. The second part of that passage, do not let the sun go down while you're angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Talks about a different kind of anger that the book calls meditative anger. And I actually think this kind is even more dangerous because explosive anger comes from the fight response in the brain and it often hurts other people first. But the second anger, meditative anger, usually follows the flight response to a threat. You try to separate yourself from the threat and this anger boils up, but it doesn't go away. It just gets stuffed inward. And there it stays and it stews, and it boils, and it grows deeper and wider. And that internal dialogue runs, and you start to have fights in your head with people. You know what I mean. <laughs> Meditative anger still hurts relationships, but it also tends to hurt us first. When the internal dialogue gets going, you start to make all of these assumptions about why this person said what they said or did what they did, what it means about your value. And either you seethe against them and it poisons your relationship from the inside out, or you turn that anger in on yourself and self-destructive things start to happen instead in your own soul. Also not good for anyone. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the devil get a foothold. I've heard a lot of people take this verse literally about not letting the sun go down while they're angry and they stay up all night to try to work something out. And I don't really necessarily think that's what this verse means. I think it's talking about intention. Because if you let the day end without deciding that you're going to work out this thing that made you angry, there's a danger that it's going to go into the permanent file. It's going to be part of your permanent mental emotional grid for the world. That's when that foothold for bitterness gets created. So to not let the sun go down on your anger, you decide that you're going to talk this out, you're going to address this, you're going to work on it, whether it's tonight or tomorrow or next week. You're not going to let that wrong just keep tunneling into your soul. Paul is just saying, don't let that anger go into the permanent file because the evil one can use that to gnaw at your heart. So, if you're not supposed to explode your anger on people, in your anger do not sin, and you're not supposed to stew on it, don't let the devil get a foothold, what does Jesus want us to do with our anger? Well, in my devotional life a couple of weeks ago, I stumbled upon this passage from Luke, and it's been convicting me about this subject. Luke 17, 3 through 4, it says, So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now there's a lot about forgiving in that passage, but what actually hit me the hardest in that passage wasn't the forgive part. I know that Jesus wants us to forgive. What struck me was the rebuke part, because that I forget to do. Jesus is saying, 
If someone has wronged you, if you're angry with them for something that they've done, you've got to call them on it. And that's been convicting me because I have to admit, I am no good at that. I have been raised in the Minnesota nice culture where either you're not supposed to be angry at all or you're not supposed to admit that you're angry, right? You're supposed to stuff it and let it come out sideways as passive aggression, right? That's what you're supposed to do. But Jesus' command here is fighting with my culture. The king of my heart says something different. And it turns out, if you don't know what you did wrong, I'm not going to tell you, isn't a helpful method for relational health. (laughs) Now, I don't know why we expect people to read our minds. And honestly, most of the time, people don't even know that they've hurt you or made you angry. They don't know that they've stepped on something you value. Jesus says, if they have sinned against you, rebuke them. You have to tell them that they hurt you because you need to give them the chance to answer the meditative anger dialogue that you've got going on in your head. You need to give them the chance to see it and apologize, to repent, to explain what they had intended, to talk it out with you so it doesn't turn into meditative anger. Because only then can any kind of letting go or forgiveness or reconciliation happen. And I totally see why Jesus, who cares so deeply about the health of our souls, tells us to do this. But it's so hard, isn't it? And it's hard for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's hard because it takes real vulnerability to tell someone who hurt you that they hurt you. It takes courage to do that. And secondly, telling them that they hurt you might make them feel bad, right? And you might want to, out of love, just let it go instead. But the problem with that is you probably won't. Even if they never know that they hurt you, it'll be there in your heart, standing between you. Now, only you know if you really can forgive and let go of anger without rebuking it. And that just takes honesty with yourself about what's really going on in your heart. The third thing that makes it hard is knowing that you might tell them and they might not care that they hurt you. Ouch. But if that's the case, at least you've done what you need to do. And now you can either let go or give it and the future of that relationship to God. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives a whole series of steps about relationship confrontation, and sometimes things go that way. Sometimes it leads to healing, sometimes it leads to ending. But either way, it's done. Now this is the road that Jesus gives out of meditative anger, out of the toxic trap of stuffed anger into a road of healing. But what do you do with an anger that you've already placed in the permanent file? What if the person you're angry with can't be rebuked or they're no longer living? What do you do with that toxic anger? Now's the time to give it to God. All of it. Because he knows your heart and their heart completely. He knows all about the circumstances, the injustices, the misunderstandings. He knows all about the past wounds that temper people's reactions. It's time to leave the judging to him and give it all to God, whatever the wrong is. And ask him instead to heal what was wounded in you as a result of it. To end it at the cross of Jesus, who didn't deserve any of the abuse he experienced, but who took it all for your sake so you could have a value and a status of the beloved of God that can never be taken away and a security in him that can never be shaken.
So let him take it. Be free. Because what Jesus cares most about is your heart, the state of your heart. In Matthew 5, 21 through 24, Jesus clearly points out how toxic, how dangerous unchecked anger is for the soul. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 22, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So at first reading, you might think Jesus is saying you can never be angry. That's not what he's saying. Remember, Jesus has been angry too. What Jesus is doing is he's pointing out that this is where murder starts. It starts in harboring anger in the heart, in the gut, and stewing on it and letting it grow. See, God cares that you don't kill someone. God really does. <laughs> but God cares just as much that you don't let your heart become a murderous stew of bitterness and rage. Because even if you never end up killing anyone, that kind of heart starts to kill you. You know what I mean? It kills our love, our joy, our peace. This matters because your heart matters. Remember earlier we talked about how anger comes from a response to a perceived threat and how often that threat is to our value or our self-worth? It's not a coincidence that Jesus goes right from talking about murder to anger to talking about name-calling in this passage because there are ways to kill without a weapon. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 22b, Again, anyone says, who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That's an intense statement. And according to the Talmud, not in the Bible, but in later writings, if you had witnesses, a name-calling slanderer could be sentenced by the court to 40 lashes with the whip. Now that would make this political season interesting, wouldn't it? Jesus starts by referencing an action and a punishment. But by the second half of this verse, he's calling our attention to something far more serious. When Jesus says, this name caller will be in danger of the fires of hell, he's not talking about punishment. He's talking about what is happening in the heart of that person, in that person's soul. Jesus is saying, if you find yourself going there, you just crossed into a danger zone. It's time for the red flags of turn around now. You see, these particular words that Jesus mentions are not rebukes about a person's behavior. They're not trying to get the other person to see the error of their ways so they can make better choices or be reconciled or something. No, these words mean you are empty. You are a worthless person, empty of all value. You are nothing. So to say this to someone is to make a judgment on their inherent value. And concerns, fears about our worth, our value, are at the root of anger. Anger is at the root of rage. Rage is at the root of murder, into destruction, into a heart closed to love or receiving love, leading to a heart cut off from God. You see why Jesus takes this so seriously? Why does Jesus say that this is dangerous to the soul? When any human being says to another human being that they have no value, who are they really challenging? They are contradicting Almighty God. Jesus, by his sacrifice, has proclaimed this person is worth dying for. God created human beings in his image. God sent Jesus to redeem human beings because of their great value to him. 
So whoever says another person is not valuable is not speaking the truth of the king. Who then are they reflecting? Who says human beings have no value? Satan does. When a person says another person has no value, they are claiming the opinion of the evil one to whom people are only a means to an end. And when hearts start to go there, that's when things like genocide start in the world. So do you see why Jesus takes this so seriously? Jesus is not saying, here are some words you shouldn't say because if you say them, then hell is the punishment. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is warning us of a state of heart that either leads in the way of the kingdom of God or leads us against it. Don't let your anger turn you against your king's heart. Jesus is saying, remember whose you are. This is Jesus' rebuke to return us to where we find life and truth. You see, you don't need to fight for your worth. That fight has already been won. Jesus came to give his life for you, to rise to life for you so that you can know forever you belong in his unshakable kingdom. Our king values people. And we remember that's true of us too. Then when those things happen that make us question our value or make us angry, we can have the security of his love to speak the truth in love, to rebuke an action in order to maintain a relationship to talk honestly with the ones who have hurt us so those hurts can either be mended if they're willing or let go if they are not. But that anger can no longer be allowed to poison the joy and the peace that God wants for our souls. And this is so important to our king that Jesus continues in Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and come and offer your gift. God says, if you think of something during our time, go ahead, I'll wait. It matters because your heart matters and because their heart matters. But it's not easy. And it's gonna take having some grace with ourselves and with each other to lean into this. This is a hard discipleship, but it's a good one. It's gonna take some soul training. The soul training exercise this week, I really recommend for everyone. It's taking some time with God and a piece of paper and asking him about the times that you have responded in reactive anger. Asking the Holy Spirit to show you what value was threatened for you. And asking him to help you in your anger not to sin, but to act in a way that will rebuke in love for the sake of moving forward. And it's also asking the Holy Spirit to show you those places where you've allowed anger to get a foothold in your soul and to help you either release that anger to the king's rule or to have the conversations that you need to have in order to be free. This matters because your heart matters, because you matter. The kingdom is where the king rules. And as the beloved of Christ, you live in the unshakable kingdom of God. So live into that freedom he wants for you. Find your security here in the only place it can never be shaken. And let your anger do what it was designed to do, to point to the wrongs that need attention. But don't let it get the steering wheel, because that only belongs to the king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for you. Thank you for your love and your grace, your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for your example in our lives. Father God, we thank you that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, we pray that you would show us what it means um, to live in your kingdom. Let you be the king. 
Um, and Lord, let your, your peace and your justice roll and reign in us and through us. Lord, we pray that you would teach us uh, the difficult discipleship of um, speaking the truth in love and um, following things through with one another, Lord, so that you can bring us peace and restoration. Lord, we thank you for all the emotions that you give us. And Lord, we pray that through each one of them that you would use them, Lord, um, to draw us deeper into your kingdom and closer to you and closer to one another. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.